Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are Groundwork Inc. I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. Heritage Radio Network broadcasts from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. We Dig Plants is produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. And our sponsor today is Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. So it's winter and it's baking season and everyone thinks that gardening is over and they've put their garden to bed. Well, no, not so. This is actually a great time to think about all those spices that you're using in your baking, everything that makes your cooking possible. And it's a good time to plan and maybe bring some tropical plants indoors um, and uh, get some of those spices. So today we're going to talk about spices and particularly the spices of cinnamon and cloves. So like how did these spices get into commerce? How did you like happen to pick them up and you know aisle five of the grocery store, you know your cinnamon that you're using? So we have a really, really fun guest today, Sarah Lohman. She's a blogger and a gastronomic historian. Sarah's going to share some recipes from yesteryear. And her blog, Four Pounds Flour, is really super great. You should check it out. Um, she does a lot of fun activities. Um, Thanks, Alice. I'm really happy to be here. It's good to be back. Yeah, <laughs> she did a show with us a few weeks ago about pears. And uh, today we're talking about spices. So, Carm, what's our first spice? We're going to talk Spice about it cinnamon. <laughs> it's a spicy container today. Three spicy ladies in the box. All right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now, of course, um, we have to talk about history. And um, we're going to talk about cinnamon and cloves. But starting with cinnamon, um, its use, of course, in cakes and cooking and mulled wine has a history. And I want to talk a little bit about the spice trade um, because it's that exploration and cultivation that brings this spice to your table and to your drink. You know, we are here as Europeans in America because of spices. You know, exactly. bottom line, Columbus, among other things, was looking for another route to the Spice Islands. He got confused and he thought he had found cinnamon, but he, he really didn't because it, it's not in the New World. So, but um, moving past Columbus a little bit, the, the kind of history that relates to cinnamon that's most interesting to us is the, in the 16th century. And it was this search for this national prestige and political power. You know, the Portuguese, the Dutch, um, the Spanish were all fighting for control of these trade routes. And exploration was very uh, prevalent. They were trying to cut out the Venetians. They were trying to cut out um, the Arabs so that they didn't have to pay exorbitant prices for um, these products. And Magellan, of course, was one such explorer. And to get rich, bottom line. <laughs> yes. I mean, um, some, of the, some of the markups were, like, astounding. When you think, you know, you pay $1.99 for cinnamon now, you know, maybe a little container of it. Some of the... Um, from from the beginning to the to the end consumer, from you know like the Spice Island, let's say the Maluka's, to the end consumer in Europe, it could have been a thirty five thousand time markup. 
Yeah. So, you know, they had to pay bribes and they had to pay freight. And so it really was a commodity for the very rich. And we kind of take it for granted. But then it was really a very, very special um, thing. So Magellan, he went exploring on behalf of Spain and he talked the king into paying for this sort of exploratory trip. And he promised the king world riches upon his return. He started out with five ships, and he returned with a hold of 26 tons of spices, and unfortunately, only 18 sailors left. And one ship. Yeah. <laughs> lucky. That's a lot of lost money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, lucky for him, um, this bounty covered the cost of the trip, and cinnamon was one of those discoveries, among others. And it was used um, to... Uh, help in the preservation of meat, although it didn't really preserve meat from what I read. It was to really camouflage the taste of meat that was spoiled, spoiled, you know, and the drudgery of eating, you know, in the winter, you can imagine, what are the Europeans eating? Mm. Um, Boiled vegetables. Boiled vegetables. (laughs) And the only meat that they had was they would kill livestock Mm. because they didn't have enough feed to get them through the winter. So they had all these butchered animals and they had to preserve them somehow. So they they mostly preserve them with salt mm-hmm. and with brines and things, but you know that I'm sure over, after a while made for a horrible, dry, tasteless kind of thing. So right. and then enter cinnamon, this like exotic, crazy. Right. Sarah, do you have some? You, you know, I I'm so interested in everything you're saying right now, but that's also <laughs> one of the reasons that Christmas time is a big feast time because we've just left slaughtering season. Mm-hmm. So right. you have to eat all the cuts of meat that don't preserve well. You know, you're making your bacon, your salt pork, and and everything else, but you have a lot of fresh meat you need to consume. So this is why December was originally this very debaucherous time because you got a lot of things you have to eat that are not going to keep. So I think that that's really interesting to connect that back to the spices too that we also associate with the holidays right because what else are those three kings going to eat when they're (laughs) walking across the desert (laughs) some beef joe camel jerky jerky i was thinking with with some cinnamon (laughs) (laughs) exactly well the plant uh, uh going back to botany a little bit the plant is found in ceylon slash now called sri lanka and it was basically two types um that were used for commercial use Cinnamonum xylanicum, found in Ceylon and the Malabar coast off of India, and Cinnamon aromaticum, which is really the cassia cinnamon that's native to Burma and South China. That's also not to be confused with cassia, the flowering tropical um, evergreen plant. So the spice is obtained from the bark of the branches, um, and it's kind of hard to uh, differentiate the different types visually you have to kind of know what you're doing so before the 16th century and there's all this fighting and power struggle cinnamon is referred um, in chinese books from 3000 bc so the chinese knew about it and they you know like so many good things they kept it a secret you know they didn't want to share um history also tells us that the egyptian queen hetepshut found and used cinnamon in about 1500 B.C. at her temple in Thebes. And it's really interesting because we associate cinnamon with cooking, Mm -hmm. but I think in ancient times it was used a lot as a perfume. A lot of the things that we associate with cooking and spices and food was really used ceremonially and also to perfume the body, which wasn't bathed as frequently as ours are. Right. So it really, its whole identity changed when it got into the hands of the Europeans, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Cinnamon is also mentioned by John the Apostle as, quote-unquote, some of the excessive riches of Babylon. 
He says, cargoes of cinnamon, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine, olive oil, flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, carriages, and bodies and souls of men. So That's um, a good description. Yes. <laughs> <Babylon>. <laughs> What they were dealing in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love that, that he equates cinnamon and souls of men. Yeah. Like it's such this tangible thing and then the, you know, the ethereal. Like, but they're both described together. And they're, so everything's for sale in Babylon. Right. You know? <laughs> um, the Roman historian Pliny writes that the cost of cinnamon was 15 times of the cost of silver. And Romans used cinnamon to flavor everything from wine and, as I was saying, for perfume. And, in fact, some uh, Roman poets that I read about were obsessed, were upset that the Romans were, were, were wasting, you know, their treasury on these, like, luxurious things. Or, like, why are we importing all these things, you know, for luxury? And not, we should be, you know, importing wheat and taking care of our people and everything instead of, Yeah, but you what know, do the people want? They want taste yes well some of the people can afford it others not so much um and one such uh, citizen emperor nero after murdering his wife ordered some cinnamon for the funeral bonfire now think about that when you light your cinnamon candle (laughs) (laughs) isn't that a crazy thought yes yeah so much for warm and fuzzy christmas thoughts you know well but what i immediately thought was the next time i have uh, a fire and a a delightful fireplace i'm going to throw a stick of cinnamon in there and see what it smells like and think of nero's dead wife yeah someone should tell hallmark (laughs) (laughs) that's not a bad idea um and you know the europeans uh the in in medieval times were not so much enamored with cinnamon as a spice due to its expense because as i was saying before it 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 cost so much by the time it was picked and brought on ships um, that, you know, it was really very special and expensive and only rare contact with Muslims and Marco Polo's expedition revived the use of it um, in in their kitchens and in their boudoirs. (laughs) Um, In fact, in the 15th century, cinnamon was so expensive that it was paid for in Muslim markets with hard currency, meaning eunuchs and white female slaves. That's so. how you bought your cinnamon. Yeah. Where is my eunuch? <laughs> I'm going to trade him for some cinnamon. <laughs> Eunuch's hard to come by now, I think. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. No. Do you remember that from History of the World? Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, going on. So, this, you know, the Portuguese and the Spaniards are fighting uh, for control of these spice routes. One of them decides to go east, and the other one, you know, the Spaniards decide, wait a minute, we're not going to go east. The Portuguese are going to, you know, they're controlling everything. We're going to try west, you know, and we're going to find Spice Islands. And, and they found a very, um, very circuitous way to get to the Spice Islands. Um, Magellan had to go all the way around South America, and, you know, he actually died in the process. He died on the islands because he kind of got distracted from what I read. He intended to get spices, and he was all set on, you know, setting up this colony and this, you know, having land for growing these spices. But he decided, wait, first we have to convert the natives. We have to convert them um, to Christianity, and then, you know, they'll be better farmers for our, you right. know. Right, it becomes a much larger mission. Yeah, you know? exactly. And then he gets killed in the process, so he never really sees the fruits of his labor, you know, which is kind of interesting. So um, in 1580, the Portuguese ruled the coast of Ceylon, and they required 
125 tons of cinnamon as a yearly tribute from the natives. Can you imagine? So here come these people. They they come here. They they decide that they're gonna you know own this land, and then they demand you know first they try to convert us, and then they demand tons of this spice. You Same know, old story. Yeah. <laughs> So um, they decided that they didn't like that, and they turned to the Dutch for help. And that's how the Dutch and the Portuguese got into this whole, like, war, you know. Um, And, you know, these wars ensued for controls of these islands. And they were bloody, bloody violent wars. And it's so interesting to me to think about that. As I was saying, this commodity that to us is so inexpensive Mm now, um, so many thousands died you know, in that process. Um, It's a story of greed, dominance, and ultimately all that fighting actually leads to the price of cinnamon falling dramatically in Europe and allowing the non-rich to have access to Mm -hmm. the spice so that we can now easily buy it and put it in our ginger... And make our cookies. And make our cookies. (laughs) And I think Sarah has something for us. I uh, do. Um, That I want to taste. No, you have to wait until we get to close for those. We should have gone... I should have gone first. (laughs) I have cookies sitting on the table here, um, tempting and wafting the smell of cinnamon and cloves. But it is cinnamon and cloves, and cinnamon and cloves do like to be buddies um, in baked goods. And um, Yeah, they do work well together, don't they? They do, they do. And depending on the time period, which is what I want to talk about Two, it's cinnamon and cloves, or we go cloves, nutmeg, mace. Those are like the two parties that come together. Um, I thought it was so interesting what you're saying because a lot of people who are interested in slow food often approach me to talk about historic food because they mm-hmm. assume that there's this natural con- this connection between the slow food movement today and how people were eating 100, 150 years ago or before. But when I think about it, people have always loved imports. You know, yeah. Amer- we, Europeans came to this country because they are looking for... Searching. Exactly. Food. To New and improved. Thousands of miles away. It's so, not just a 1960s ad campaign. No. <laughs> no. We've always loved exotic food. Um, cinnamon is interesting because it fell out of vogue for a while. And I actually don't know why. Usually when food is fashionable, it has to do with either the fact that it's cheap and easily available or it's new and exotic. And in the first American cookbook, which was published in the 1790s, um, you see cinnamon throughout the baked goods. It's there with nutmeg. It's it's very, very common. But then by the turn of 1800 through 1850, 1860, you really don't see cinnamon as much. It's nutmeg. It's mace. Interesting. So I don't know. Mace? Because we don't. Who, who, who uses with mace? mace now? And mace is a huge, uh, was a huge baked good ingredient. It was always any almost any dish that has nutmeg in it will also have mace in it. Hmm. So, um, but that's that first part of the 19th century, and we don't see cinnamon coming back again until really we start approaching 1900. So it fell out of fashion for a while. But when I was thinking of what to bring you guys today and what to talk about as far as cinnamon, um, I'm flipping flipping through my books and I think, oh, snickerdoodles. That is the cookie that is like, it's the cookie is just a vessel for cinnamon. <laughs> yeah. It's just the thing that brings the flavor of the palate <laughs> of cinnamon to you. And it's something you can really affect the flavor of that simple cookie by changing what cinnamon you're using. Because there are kind of this mind-boggling blend of cinnamons out there now and, and single-origin cinnamons and so many things that you can get from different spice companies that all have a unique flavor. And I think that a, a snickerdoodle is an interesting thing to do that. 
So I started looking into the history a little bit more, and uh, everyone seems really more obsessed with the etymology of the word snickerdoodle and mm-hmm. where that word came from mm-hmm. than the cookie itself. And I think the cookie is so interesting because there are very few other cookies that concentrate on the flavor of one spice so much. You know, there's no chips, there's no nuts, there's nothing else in there. It's just cinnamon. So a snickerdoodle, in my mind, is less about that word and more about where did that cookie originate. Yeah. So what I found is it starts appearing right after 1900 in um, cookbooks that were written by charities, essentially, churches. Mm -hmm. And then the first book that I found that had widely published book is Rufus Estes' Good Things to Eat, which is the first cookbook by an African-American chef. There had been African-American cookbooks before that, but this was the first man who was employed as a chef to write it. And in his book, he has a recipe for snippo doodles, S-N-I-P-P-O doodles. So I don't know where the variation of that word comes from. A lot of people said snicker, uh, snickerdoodles is based on a German word, but the, no one talks about this recipe, which is, in fact, a butter cookie. You know, sugar, butter, milk, eggs, flour, and a teaspoon of cinnamon. And the main difference between this recipe from 1911 and our current snickerdoodles is that he says you bake them in a thin sheet, and then you cut them while they're still warm, and they're almost in a way like biscotti. Right. So I I have not made this recipe yet, but I'm going to mm-hmm. this week. As a matter of fact, this week I'm doing, well, since it is Christmas and I have my head in baked goods, I'm doing all cookies. So um, if you're curious what a snippodoodle tastes like and how different it is from our modern day snickerdoodle, um, swing by my blog. I'm going to be doing all kinds of cookie recipes this week, this one and the one that I have sitting on the table as yeah. well. Fourpoundsflour.com. Fourpoundsflour.com. Snippodoodles. So horticulturally, how does this cinnamon grow, Carmen? Well, let me tell you. First, <laughs> um, I'd like to just read um, how the um, how the Arabs kept the price up, uh, the cinnamon. Uh, let me tell you historically um, how they pretended that cinnamon was harvested and grown. This, yeah, this the, is a great story. The Arabians say that large birds bring those dry sticks called cinnamon for their nests, which are built with clay on precipitous mountains that no man can scale. (laughs) To surmount this difficulty, they have invented the following artifice. Having cut up into large pieces the limbs of dead oxen and other beasts of burden, they lay them near the nest and retire to a distance. The birds fly down and carry off the joints to their nests, which are not strong enough to support the weight of the meat, and fall to the ground. Then the men come up and gather the cinnamon, and in this matter it reaches other countries. (laughs) Wow. So they were wily, (laughs) those Arabs. Um, But actually, cinnamon comes from a tree that can reach about 50 feet in height. But for commercial use, the trees are trained into bushes about six or eight feet. The leaves are fragrant, and they're actually used for tea. The plant requires a huge amount of water, and in its natural habitat, it gets upwards of six feet of rain annually. By comparison, New York gets about 47 or 47 inches or four feet of rain um, you know, per year. Um, they are usually propagated by seeds or cuttings, and pruning occurs after two to three years to form sort of like a bush. And uh, cinnamon doesn't, you don't have to wait long. After two years, uh, you can harvest the cinnamon bark. Um, now, unlike what the Arabs said with the giant joints of oxen and stuff, uh, harvesting is rather simple. The, br- <laughs> <laughs> the branches are cut from the tree. 
Then they're left for a day or two in damp conditions for easier separation into smaller pieces. The twigs and branches are trimmed from the branches, and the outer rough layer of the bark is scraped off. Stripes are then cut into the branches to separate the bark from the inner wood, and the bark is then cut from the branch by making two accurate parallel cuts, and then it forms that dried curl Mm -hmm. that we know, cinnamon sticks, Mm -hmm. and then it's dried in that condition. The plant can live here as an indoor plant under frost-free conditions with lots of water. Um, They will survive mild, short-term freezing. Today, it's mostly grown commercially in Brazil, Java, Madagascar, Vietnam, the West Indies, and one of my favorite places, Zanzibar. (laughs) So... Um, we actually have to take a break. Yes. I'm mm-hmm. getting the symbol. <laughs> uh, you're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking about spices, cinnamon and cloves with our guest, Sarah Lohman. Welcome back. That was a song called Cinnamon and Clove. Alice, you find the best music. By Brother Groove. <laughs> Don't you know? Um, you're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network, and we're talking about spices with Sarah Lohman. Hello. And um, we're going to talk for a second about the partner to cinnamon, uh, cloves, which is what Sarah was describing earlier. Um, This is a very similar story to cinnamon. It hails from the same region, Indonesia and Malaysia. Cloves, um, like cinnamon, were present in China. The Chinese were said to use them as far back as 226 BC in the Han Dynasty. Um, Citizens were required, actually, to to chew the flowerets prior to meeting with the emperor, so that their breath would not smell so bad because I'm sure they didn't have a lot of toothpaste. Oh my God, and their teeth, their blackened teeth. I can just imagine. (laughs) Um, Archaeologists found cloves um, in a ceramic vessel in Syria um, along with evidence dating uh, the find to within a few years of 1721 BC. Mm. So, Syria. Wow. Cloves were highly prized, of course, in Roman times, and Pliny the Elder once famously complained that there is no year in which India does not drain the Roman Empire of 50 million coins. So that, that's, a, that's a big product um, that, that they're importing. Um, cloves are traded by the Arabs during the Middle Ages um, in the profitable ocean, Indian Ocean trade. In the late 15th century, Portugal took over the India Ocean trade, as Carmen was describing earlier, including cloves, and this began another commodity fight uh, for Europe. (laughs) The Dutch, of course, wanted the monopoly, um, so they went about destroying the clove trees 
that sprouted up everywhere um, because they wanted to, to control the, the farming of it. So anything that wasn't under their control, they would destroy. It makes our corporation seem nice by comparison, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it, Sarah? Yeah. <laughs> Ruthless. Yeah. I just had no idea that the history of Spice was so racy. Yeah. It's, it's very bloody and, and extremely ugly. And it's, it's monopoly, you know? Yeah. It really is. So, of course, this ended up causing quite an uprising among the natives um, because the, the native tradition was to plant a clove tree upon the birth of a child so that the life of the tree was psychologically tied directly to that child. So all of a sudden, you know, here comes the Dutch and they're burning and, and trashing the trees. That doesn't bode well for that particular child with whom the tree is associ- associated. So the native islander, islanders came to hate the Dutch, naturally, sure. um, wherever they extended this tree burning campaign it smelled good though right (laughs) nice Carmen (laughs) I'm sorry just trying to Uh, add some levity (laughs) all right the spice gets its name from the French word clue which means nail um, because these cloves actually look like nails Um, the clove is actually the dried flower bud of an evergreen tree and it's the oil um, that has the properties that that we desire it also has a lot of medicinal properties um, and it cures many ailments most interestingly cloves have long been used to aid in dentistry as they have local anesthetic properties oh that's probably why there's clove flavored toothpaste Toothpaste. that was probably one of the first flavors for toothpaste i bet yeah they're antiseptic antibacterial antifungal antispasmodic antiviral antiparasitic wow it's got a lot of really interesting uh, characteristics. So quickly, we'll talk about growing cloves, and then I want to have Sarah share some of those delicious cookies that we're looking at. Um, Clove is an ultra-tropical small tree which will not survive temperatures below 50 degrees um, Fahrenheit. It requires a humid, warm, tropical climate with lots of water year-round. It can be grown in a greenhouse outside of the tropics, um, but again, it takes a lot of humidity and a lot of water. Indoor cultivation is problematic, uh, mostly because of lack of air humidity. Um, Cloves are, like I said, the dried flower buds that come from the tree Eugenia caryophyllus, which is in the myrtle family. Um, from from tropical areas. Um, the tree can grow up to 30 feet tall. It has white, bell-shaped flowers, the buds of which are green when they first appear, and then they turn pink as they mature. Um, it needs very rich soil. It cannot take standing water, so it needs a well-draining um, area. And it prefers partial shade um, in a cooler area but again not below 50. The seeds can be sown directly in the ground or sometimes they can be soaked overnight to soften them and then sown. Um, It won't produce flowers until it's been growing for at least five years. Um, The cloves are then hand picked when the buds are just turning pink right before the flower opens. Mm -hmm. The harvested buds are sun-dried which turns them a dark brown with these lighter brown heads. That's why they resemble a nail. Um, And one tree can yield up to 40 pounds. So that's a good bounty. So uses for cloves, um, edible uses in India dishes, 
It's the foundation of garam masala. Um, it's in southern India. It's birani. It flavors rice. Um, in tea, as in masala chai. Mexican cuisine, it's called clavos de olor, which is mixed with cumin and cinnamon. Um, in Vietnam, Vietnamese cuisine, it's the broth of pho. Um, in the Netherlands, cloves are used in cheese along with cumin. And it's the, um, it's the foundation of the Dutch stew hachi. Um, and my favorite use of cloves is from the 1980s. <laughs> we were Clove talking about cigarettes. cigarettes. That's right. And, and 90s, too. And 90s. Yeah. I was in high school in the 90s, and yeah. they were still popular amongst the guys. All of our gothic friends. Yeah, it brings back really fond memories whenever I smell a clove cigarette. Yeah, but, I think everybody feels the same. It, yeah. it just brings yeah. them back to well, the actually, age of discovery. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And we, like the Dutch, like to uh, try exotic things. You yeah, know? everybody yeah. does. So, yeah. and so fact, let's try some of those exotic yes. cookies. Oh, you were about these cookies well all right you have to wait one second because i i know i know you're not waiting i have to i heard a story from my friend bill wander who is a bar historian and is the resident historian of mcsorley's Mm -hmm. and he told me that they would keep um bowls of cloves on the bars in the victorian era because you could chew a couple cloves before you went home to the missus yeah and supposedly she wouldn't know where you were right and there is that gum clove gum yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. and apparently the uh original slogan for clove gum was it takes your breath away because <laughs> nice. it was produced so but that you could chew it after you were drinking during Prohibition era. Right. So cloves have a long history of linking with booze. I wonder what the cops think of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was just chewing Those some breath- cloves. <laughs> the breath- I drinking. smell clove on your breath. <laughs> yeah. And there's a beautiful fragrance from the Victorian era called Florida Water too, which is clove-based. Speaking huh. of using spices as perfume, yeah. you can still find it in the oddest places. I found it in my drugstore in Queens, and I found it in the Goya food section in Ohio. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> look around for it. Florida Water, it's lovely. Oh, that's really good. good so to hear. It's wonderful. So these cookies are um, Lebkuchen, which um, is a cookie I've been researching recently, and it's a German cookie that can be very regional. This recipe comes from 1914 from the Neighborhood Cookbook, which is a very early kosher cookbook um, and deals a lot with German Jewish food as well. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a dish where cinnamon and cloves are buddies, which is common for Lebkuchen. What is uncommon about this recipe and what jumped out to me is that most Lebkuchen have candied fruit in it. And I hate fruit in cookies. Yeah. I, I, I love you all out there if you do. It's just mm-hmm. not my taste. Alice is making a face. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. Um, and this one did not. And what it did have was chocolate in it. It has a little bit of Dutch cocoa in it. Mm-hmm. So I actually can't take credit for making these. My mother and I were working on some cookie recipes together. So she shipped these to me from nice. Cleveland, Ohio, which is why they're so beautiful because I'm not as meticulous as she is. <laughs> She's an incredibly meticulous baker. So um, here you are, Carmen. They're lovely. You bake them in a sheet, and then you cut them into squares. So they're little, about 1.5 inch by 1.5 inch squares. The glaze is just a little bit of uh, white sugar boiled with water, so it's a beautiful kind of clear, frosty glaze. Mm. And there's a little slivered almond on top. And they're very mm. spicy, and almost like a, a gingerbread, I think. Yeah. yeah. This is very old world-ish. Yeah. 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 It's very dense with spice. It, it To me, mm. even though this recipe is after... 1900 it mm-hmm. speaks much more to an earlier way of cooking you can yeah. tell it's like a very it's a recipe that's been passed down and it's a recipe that has been made in germany for hundreds of years 
it's kind of like um, a cake a little bit. Yeah. It's chewy. Yeah, it's really it's good. Definitely chewy. And I find that the cocoa really mellows it too. The spices can be very strong. Yeah. And I think the cocoa adds something. Yeah, it just is nice, mellower flavor too. This reminds me a lot, Sarah, of um, a traditional Italian cookie called Mastacholi. Mm. And it's also cinnamon and clove based. Mm hmm. And we always eat it at Christmas. It's kind of diamond-shaped, and it usually has a chocolate frosting on it. Okay. It's extremely similar to this. Mm -hmm. In texture, too? Yes, it's soft. Mm. Mm. It's kind of like, I I always described it as Italian gingerbread. Mm -hmm. And it's only available at Christmas time. It's like the traditional Christmas Christmas cookie. Mm -hmm. Well, if you out there are interested in this recipe and other recipes, I'm going to be putting them up on my blog all week. So you can make some Lebkuchen of your own. Lebkuchen. I think Mm -hmm. I need to taste it again. You just need one more. (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. When I think of cloves, I always think of those, you know, Victorian... Um, like fruits, you know, that were oh, adorned sure. the, with oh, the. My mom used to make those, so this gives you a sense of my. They're adorned with the cloves. Yeah, you, you, know. you I, she, I can't think of the name, but yeah, you put them, you know, where someplace where it'll get warm and kind yeah. of. And that's also good to throw in punch too, alcoholic mm-hmm. punch too, to flavor that during the holidays as yeah, well. Yeah, mulled wine. Yeah, mm, this is really good, Sarah. Oh, good. Really good. Thank you, mom. Yeah, they're really they're good cookies. Awesome. Everyone loves them. Awesome. So. Um, Anything else about cloves? <laughs> meat, too. It is a mm. big flavoring. Mm, we talked true. about spices flavoring meat and how that's kind of fallen out of vogue. Mm-hmm. To flavor meat with cloves was still popular in the Victorian era. Um, recently, I made some tongue for the very first time. Ooh, and oh, you wow. throw some cloves in there. I didn't necessarily taste it, but I think it over had, overall had a nice spicy quality to it. I never had tongue before. Sometimes I think it's a little bit odd to eat something an animal talks with, but <laughs> I got over it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm not a big fan of tongue, but I've had really good um, sliced tongue, mm. you know, at, in Jewish delis yeah. on the Lower East Side. And I had the same kind of reaction, Sarah. I was like, mm, yeah, I don't know if I can eat this, but then I tasted it. It's not how you expect it to no. taste. No, and like, as, a, as a deli meat, it yeah. is see, incredible. I think if it were sliced up for me and I, and I didn't ever see the shape of it because the shape is so form follows yes. function yes you can't you, you look can't at get it. away it's this big floppy you know? thing and you're like this is what a cow makes moo with yeah and yeah cooking it in and my I kitchen think of my dog and i'm yeah. like licking my hand and i you yeah. know yeah exactly. but if it had cloves you know and i didn't have to see the shape no well as fun. as yeah. a deli meat um and I'm kind of squeamish when it comes to food. As a deli meat, you can't tell, Alice. Mm-hmm. It just looks like yeah. Maybe I'll you know, have to try it that way. It yeah. was really, really good. I mean, I've eaten. You know, I think those kinds of animal parts need help from spices <laughs> yeah. and strong flavors. And slow cooking. Slow cooking. Uh, yeah. 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 I and mean, it's much meatier as opposed to. I expected more of an organ meat, and it didn't have that texture. No. No. It's yeah. it's very very different. I I usually don't eat bizarro things like that um, because <laughs> yeah. well I grew up eating that stuff yeah. my mom made every internal organ um alice knows the story yeah. as well and um so i'm always resistant to trying internal <laughs> things but now do your parents yeah. use a lot of cinnamon or, or cloves in their cooking carmen no in italian no not really their their sweetening and their flavoring mm. um is mostly um almond and orange and honey based more mediterranean yeah, right, right you know so it's more the germanic yeah. Northern Europeans. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't think my mother probably ever tasted 
um, other than the store-bought ones, those masta chili were not homemade. Mm. They were usually bought at a bakery at Christmas. It was mm-hmm. something very special that you bought. And we were on our previous show, we were talking about citrus. Citrus was the Christmas gift. Mm. Yeah. These cookies, as well as small oranges, yeah. were what they would get as gifts. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know, so it was very, very special to have both. You know? Well, if you'd like to try your hand at um, growing cinnamon or cloves i found a source called toptropicals.com where you can actually buy um six inch plants Hmm. i mean there'll be babies and you know good luck (laughs) in in the new york northeast region but if you have a greenhouse or a super sunny room yeah you know you can try it and you know the the cinnamon would would probably be a, a decent um spice for you to actually use you know Cloves might be a little more difficult because of the flowering, but uh, but yeah. you could probably wow. get some of your own cinnamon. How's that for slow food? Exactly. Grow Very your slow. own spices. <laughs> exactly. Toptropicals.com. I'm sorry, we have to wrap it up. We could talk forever about <laughs> all the different kinds of spices with Sarah. I'm sure she's got a lot more information to share. So we'll have her back on in a couple of weeks. It would be my pleasure. So, uh, thanks so much for coming with us and putting our spices into historical perspective, Sarah. Of course. Um, Like she says, history should be experiential. She gets her hands into the ingredients, just as we do into the dirt. Um, It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks to Jack Inslee for producing and engineering. Thanks to Roberta's Pizza, Bushwick, Brooklyn, and to our sponsor, Hearst Ranch. If you missed any part of the show, please note that it's available via archive and on the website, heritageradionetwork.com and via podcast and iTunes. Happy gardening. Happy gardening.